All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. Uh, there's a handout in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along in that way or fill in uh, some of the blanks. I'll try to cover them. I'll try to remember to do that. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would invite you. There, there should be a Bible right in front of you in the pew or in the chairs right in front of you. It's the black book there. And I can even give you the page number because I'm preaching from one of those Bibles today. So it's page uh, number 959 near the back of the Bible uh, for 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, the last several months, we've been working through 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the first letter to the church uh, of the Corinthians. And uh, we have divided the book up into two major sections. Uh, throughout the book, it becomes fairly evident that Paul would at times handle problems. Uh, there, there were significant problems in the house churches of Corinth. Uh, sometimes when you read through this book, you just wonder how in the world could a church get to where it is, uh, where this church is. Uh, there were not only significant problems, um, we, we noticed throughout the book that uh, there are times when uh, Paul answers questions uh, as well. And uh, this is, of course, I think one of those times. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1, you can see that the question that he's going to address uh, has to do with spiritual gifts. And this question will go from chapters 12 the whole way to chapter 14. And so what you have in these chapters is you have some counsel from the Apostle Paul, some admonitions, to some ancient believers who are interested in gifts of the Spirit. Now, this particular topic is still quite relevant today, and people are very interested in it. As a matter of fact, uh, this week, uh, throughout the week, uh, one day, I went onto Amazon, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to look up some books on spiritual gifts. If you type in spiritual gifts to Amazon in the book section, you will come away with over 20 pages of books written about the gifts of the Spirit. I took the time to jot down some of, my, some of the most interesting titles. Now, I'm not recommending these to you. Uh, one, one book was entitled, Releasing Your Spiritual Gifts Today. Another uh, that caught my attention was this, Growing in the Prophetic, A Practical Biblical Guide to Dreams, Visions, and Spiritual Gifts. One of the ones that was most confusing to me was the book entitled The Five-Fold, subtitle, Unlocking Your Purpose by Activating Your Spiritual Gifts. The Five-Fold. Kind of threw me off for a while. I, I, then, then I realized what was going on. I thought, well, why is it not like the tenfold or the hundredfold? Why only five-fold? But then uh, perhaps a, another book, a title that was interesting, Prophetic Activation. Break your limitation to release your prophetic influence. So if you're going to be writing a book on spiritual gifts in our world today, some of the key words you will want to use in the title would be prophetic, activation, unlocking, and releasing. Okay, those are some of the key words that are repeated over and over again. Believers today are quite interested in the subject of spiritual gifts, but I want to suggest that our study of spiritual gifts instead of starting with any one of those books or any other good book written on the subject, should begin with the Scriptures. 
If you're going to study and know what the Bible says about spiritual gifts, the, one, of the, one of the advantageous things for us as New Testament believers is there are really only a few passages that you have to master. There are four passages on spiritual gifts in the New Testament that you could study. Now, one of them we're going to study in detail here, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. But you could look at some of these other passages this week and try to understand them a bit more. Uh, One key text on spiritual gifts is Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Romans 12, 6 through 8. There Paul lists seven or eight spiritual gifts and talks about their ministry in the assembly. Uh, only three verses, so you could study that this week. You could, you could learn all about it. You could master Romans 12, 6 through 8. You could also uh, then go to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, you have six verses about spiritual gifts that Paul gives to the churches of, of Ephesus there. And so uh, six verses in Ephesians chapter 4. And then you could add to that something that's not in the, the Pauline epistles, but something that Peter wrote. Peter gave us two verses on spiritual gifts in 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Okay, so so far this seems pretty easy. I mean, these are the spiritual gifts passages in the New Testament that talk about the different gifts that God has given to the church. There's one place with three verses, one with six verses, another with two verses. When we go through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we'll do the heavy lifting, however, because there we have three chapters. Uh, I don't have the verse. I think it's over 80 verses, 85 or 86 verses on spiritual gifts in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Foundationally, this, though, is a very important topic for the church of God today because uh, there are many uh, conflicting opinions on the subject. There are many different voices that you could hear about spiritual gifts in the world today, and, and these experts are actually giving you conflicting ideas and thoughts. So this is important to us because there are many different voices and there are many different opinions, but it's also important to us foundationally because this involves the Holy Spirit of God. And this involves our relationship specifically to God's Spirit in the church And so we need to apply ourselves to these chapters to understand them and gain significance uh, from them as we go through uh, the book. So I have uh, pretty realistic goals this morning. I would like to kind of whet your appetites for chapters 12 through 14. And then I want to cover just three verses at the beginning of chapter 12. So look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul says... Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Let's go and bow to the Lord and ask him to give us guidance as we study his word this morning. Father, I thank you for the privilege of getting into this text of scripture and even just these first three verses, this introductory paragraph. I pray, that, I pray, Lord, that our foundations would be secure. And as we approach these chapters, that you would help us understand them. Lord, we long to know more of the Holy Spirit's ministry 
in us and through us to the body of Jesus Christ, the church. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you would guide my mouth and our thoughts and our focus. May we apply ourselves so that we can learn more about the gifts that come from the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have the outline in your notes, you notice I have two main points. Uh, Verse 1, I think what Paul's doing there is he's just introducing the topic. He's introducing the topic. He marks out the topic with the words, Now concerning which not only mark out topics for him, but tell us when he's answering questions from the Corinthians letter. Remember, the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter previous to this, and he's answering questions from them. I think one of the best things we can do in introduction, then, is to try to figure out what are some of the questions that the Corinthian church asked Paul about spiritual gifts. Now, if you turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, you can see that sometimes when Paul answers questions from the Corinthians, he'll quote it. He'll quote their question or their statement. So 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning. You see the same words there. He's marking out something he's addressing for their letter. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, colon, quotation marks. This is coming from the Corinthians. This is what they wrote in their letter. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, we've already dealt with that question or that statement from the Corinthians. We know that they asked Paul a lot of questions about singleness and marriage in chapter 7. And occasionally he'll just tell us exactly what the Corinthian slogan or comment is. So you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or uh, sorry, chapter 12, though, you'll notice that he doesn't come right out and tell us the exact nature of the questions or the topics that the Corinthians asked Paul about. Uh, But I want to suggest that there is enough information in the chapters that can help us understand the sort of statements that some of the Corinthian believers were making about the topic of spiritual gifts. So what I want to do for about five minutes is I I want to think about what is the nature of the questions the Corinthian believers asked Paul. In uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, generally speaking, we know that their questions were about spiritual things. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. One of the important things for you to know if you're going to understand the word of God here in this text is that the word gifts in your Bible, which is, I think, found in just about every major English translation, the word gifts is a word that is supplied by translators to make sense out of what is going on in the passage. This could actually read, now concerning the spirituals. If you were to actually just translate it quite literally, now concerning the spirituals. And so Paul uses an adjective spiritual that's plural, spirituals. But in 1 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the spirituals, he might have one of two things in mind. Okay? Occasionally in the letter, when he talks about the spiritual, he'll be talking about spiritual person or spiritual people. So it may be that the Corinthians were asking Paul questions about spiritual people. Or another way of taking this is that he's talking about spiritual things like spiritual gifts. So if you look in your Bible at chapter 14 and verse 1, you see the same word used there. 
in chapter 14 and verse 1 to describe spiritual gifts. Pursue love, Paul says, and earnestly desire the spiritual. The spirituals. And there it's obvious from the context that he's talking about spiritual gifts. However, if you look in chapter 14 and verse 37, he uses the same word to talk about spiritual people. So look at chapter 14 and verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or he is spiritual, a spiritual person. Okay, so uh, generally speaking, the question that Paul is addressing, the topic, has to do either with spiritual gifts or spiritual people. I think spiritual gifts is a great translation. I think that's fine. It actually might even be both. The Corinthian believers may have asked questions about, to Paul about spiritual gifts and spiritual people. Regardless, at the basic level, the Corinthians were curious about how they could determine who was more spiritual, who's a more spiritual person in their assembly, or what gifts made someone more spiritual in the assembly. Okay, and so that's one of the foundational questions I think they were asking him. And and we're going to say some things to try to answer that question today. Now, as you go along, when you get into chapter 14, I think you can get uh, more specific. It becomes more clear the questions that they were asking Paul. What becomes obvious is not only were they asking Paul what gifts make someone more spiritual, they're also asking questions like, if I had to choose between the the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, which one is better? Which one is more significant? So look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. I just want you to see that as you go along in this text, you can see the sort of questions that Paul is answering. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he others mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue, tongue builds himself up, uh, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Because as you're looking through chapter 14, it becomes obvious that the Corinthians had asked Paul questions about tongues and prophecy and which one was more important. So to reconstruct their question, if you're taking notes, you might just write down a few of these questions. I think that at least these three questions the Corinthians asked Paul. Question number one, I think they asked him something like this. Paul, is it true that overwhelming experience or experiences in worship constitute irrefutable evidence of godliness or spirituality. Paul, uh, as we're talking about the spirituals, the spiritual gifts, is it true that an overpowering experience in worship irrefutably means that the Spirit of God has been among us? Is that true? I think they asked that question, and Paul answers it in our introductory paragraph. I think that they also asked a question like this. Number two, Paul, what does it mean to be spiritual? Or 
how can we know if someone is a spiritual person? That's an important question to consider. I mean, that's a good question. I'm glad they asked that question. You know what, if I asked believers in this room that question, I'm sure I would get a lot of different answers. How can you tell if someone is spiritual or more spiritual than another person? If I asked, I don't know how many different answers I'd get in this room. Oftentimes, I think when we try to answer that question, we attribute it to something that the person does, a spiritual thing that they do. So the more spiritual a person is, the better their prayer life is. Or so, so we can examine their prayer life and say, oh, well, that person is like really spiritual. Or we point to uh, their work in soul winning, okay, or giving out the gospel. And if someone is used by God to see many different people converted or saved, we say, well, that person is more spiritual than I am. Or, you know, go through a whole list of different uh, opportunities and responsibilities or gifts in the church. Sometimes we think that the preacher is by, in some way or another, just because he stands at the front of the assembly, actually opens his mouth to declare the word of God, that he's more spiritual than other people. But, but does that mesh with what the scriptures are saying? I want to try to answer that question uh, as we go throughout here. I think the Corinthians would, would do it a little bit differently. They, they would say that the more spiritual people among them were the ones practicing practicing miraculous gifts like tongues. Like the, the tongue speakers, they're the more spiritual. Okay, so I think Paul, the Corinthians asked Paul that question. And I think it's a loaded question. It's hard to answer that Paul will deal with. And then the third question I think they asked him or something like this is, which gift is superior, tongues or prophecy? And knowing this church, I could imagine that there were rival groups arguing. Some were saying, oh, we like tongues better. We like prophecy better. We exalt those sort of leaders who do these things. And so Paul goes about answering that particular type of question. So that's the nature of the types of questions that they're asking. There's one other little thing I want to do in introducing you to 12 through 14. I think this is important. And that is I just want to just think for a moment about the wisdom of Paul's answer. Okay, and one of the things I was just drawn to this week in studying this passage is the pastoral wisdom and tact that the apostle Paul displayed in answering the question. You know, there's sometimes when a, a, a person will come to, to me as a pastor, one of the pastors, and will ask us a very difficult and sensitive question about their walk with the Lord. And uh, sometimes as they're unfolding the question, it becomes obvious as a pastor that they've got a certain opinion about it. You know, just in the nature, you know, they're not even asking questions after a while. They're like making statements with exclamation marks after them. And what's especially difficult, I I'm finding as a younger, newer pastor, is trying to get to the place where you can answer the question if you disagree with the person, okay? And there are different ways you can do this, right? You can just say, you know what, you're completely off. I know you just put like an exclamation point on that thing, but that's like, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't even say anything about that, and you're just completely clueless. 
Okay, but, but how big is this church going to get if we do that sort of thing, right? It's going to be like me and Pastor Paul, and that's about it. Okay, my wife will even be gone. All right. So as a pastor, though, you know, one of the things you, you, you see is, you know, okay, the, the wise approach would be to lay a theological foundation to try to answer this question before we ever get to the answer. And so my opinion, that's what Paul does in chapters 12 through 14. That's why I got three chapters on it. It's a sensitive issue. Corinthians were vying over tongues and prophecy. And so what Paul starts by doing is in chapter 12, Paul lays out a theology of spiritual gifts. An entire chapter where Paul talks about the nature of gifts. It's the best chapter in the entire New Testament to help us understand the nature of the gifts. The way they're distributed, the extent of the gifts, the proportion of the gifts. It's a theology of spiritual gifts. And then you would think that he's like ready then to answer their specific questions. But he doesn't do that. In chapter 13, after laying a theological foundation, he talks about the value and importance of love. Which you might think is a sidetrack, right? You know, just answer our questions about the gifts, Paul. Which ones are more important, tongues or prophecy? Paul says, well, there's some things you need to know about spiritual gifts. And let me talk to you about the value of love. If you do not demonstrate the spiritual fruit of love in any area of giftedness that you exercise, it will mean zero. It's worth nothing. So he talks about the value and importance of love in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, in my opinion, he gets back to the specific question of the Corinthians about tongues and prophecy. He describes his preference for the gift of prophecy because it can build people up. And then he explains that the gift of prophecy is better because people can actually understand what's going on with it. It's intelligible. And it's more orderly. And so that's the nature of the big question uh, that Paul answers in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 4. And that's an introduction to the topic. Now, uh, with uh, the 10 minutes I have left or so, 15 minutes this morning, I want to look at verses 2 and 3 and see what else Paul does in this introductory paragraph. In verses 2 and 3, Paul gives us the marks of genuine worship or genuine spirituality. Look with me at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit of God. I think these two verses are very important. That's why I'm going to end the sermon with these two and focusing on these two. I think often people kind of overlook them and just get right into the heart of it. But there's some very important premises that are given here. In verse 2, Paul describes false worship. And then in verse 3, he describes, he gets to describing genuine worship. And so I've summarized Paul's points here in two, in two ways. First, in verse 12, Paul uh, says that frenzied worship is not a mark of genuine spirituality. That's how I take verse 2. Frenzied, emotional, out-of-control Worship is not a mark of genuine spirituality. I think verse 2 is fairly easy to understand as far as what the content of it is. Uh, He says there, 
you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. So it's clear that at least some of the Corinthian believers, before they were conversion, were involved, before they were converted, were involved in idolatry and pagan worship. Okay, and so, so that's pretty easy to, to understand in verse 2. That's what verse 2 means. Before their salvation, they were led astray by false mute idols. Deaf and dumb idols. However, one of the more important questions I think with verse 2 to ask is, why does Paul put this verse here? And actually, that question is perplexing. If you're going you're gonna to study the New Testament or the Bible and know it, you've got to ask, what does this mean and why is it here? And when you ask the question, why is verse 2 here? I mean, why would Paul remind them of their past lifestyle when they've got questions about spiritual gifts in the church? I mean, what does paganism and idolatry have to do with spiritual gifts in the assembly? And to answer that question, I think that we can answer it by observing that Paul emphasizes something in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul uses a word, or two words that are very closely related, twice here, two verbs. He says, you were led astray, and then he doesn't need to say it, right? I mean, he could be done, but then he adds at the end, however, you were led, okay? And these come from uh, very similar words. I think Paul is emphasizing something about the pagan worship that they used to be a part of. It appears that Paul gives us verse 2 to demonstrate that the Corinthians were formerly led about in worship by forces that were not the Spirit of God. In other words, in their past, the Corinthians knew what it meant to be moved by spirit beings outside of themselves, demonic spirits, that energized false worship. You see, some of the Corinthians had been heavily involved in frenzied worship at pagan temples in their past. For some of them, that meant that they would be involved in something called ecstasy. Ecstasy would be a time where their emotions would reach such a high level in their worship before conversion that all logic and mental processes went out the window in favor of the experience. You study paganism or idolatry in Corinth, you see that uh, in idol worship, lost people would be surrounded by things like soothsayers and demonic activities. Before their conversion, some of these believers would have been involved in things like trances, in the name of worship. They would have been involved in sensuous dances, immoralities, drunkenness, orgies, idolatry, and fleshly indulgences in the name of worship. Okay? So that's verse 2. But it's my opinion that it may be that some of the Corinthian believers were still drawn to the spectacular in worship as a sign of a true spiritual experience. 
Imagine the worship in the house churches of, of Corinth getting out of control. When everyone's speaking in a tongue that no one can understand, they're doing it at the same time. And people are adding to that on top of that prophetic utterances and so on. It just gets out of control and it's loud, it's crazy, it's chaotic. And I think some of the Corinthians were saying, now that, that was worship. That's a spiritual experience. And I think what Paul is saying uh, to them is something like this. You know, being carried away or losing yourself in worship is no mark of the Spirit of God. Other forces can carry you away too. Even death and dumb idols, when energized by Satan, can carry you away. So I think in verse 2, I think the whole reason this verse is here is he's making the point that being frenzied in worship is not a genuine mark of the moving of the Spirit of God. I mean, do you know that you can have an experience in the name of worship that might be wrong? Yes, but it was so powerful, it was so moving. Instead of it being of the Spirit, it may have been produced by extreme emotionalism or hype or confusion or worse yet, deception, deceit. I mean, it should not surprise us that Satan might attempt to deceive the church by producing counterfeit experiences to confuse and distract believers from worshiping God. I mean, in other words, when I study my Bible and I go through the Old and New Testament, you know what, what God does? Satan counterfeits. Satan counterfeits in order to deceive people. So as a church, we must pray that God allows us to evidence genuine traits of worship that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Because he's giving us these marks of genuine spirituality. In verse 2, he's making the point, frenzied worship is not a mark of genuine spirituality. Not necessarily a mark of genuine spirituality. But but then secondly, in verse 3, Paul declares this. He declares that the mark of genuine spirituality is confession of Jesus Christ. Okay, in verse 3, it's a pretty simple verse to outline. It divides up in half. There are two professions or confessions that people might make. First, in the first part of the verse, he, he explains it negatively. He says, no one speaking in the Spirit of God, or I would say through the power of the Spirit of God, ever says that Jesus is accursed. No one who's led by God's Spirit would ever say that in worship. Okay, now, there there are different ways to understand that. And, like, I mean, who would actually say that? It's kind of hard for me to think about a believer ever saying that in worship. I mean, can you imagine a believer standing up in here and say, Jesus is cursed? And that, like, even being a controversial thing for us at all. It's like, okay, that guy, he's messed up. You can't say Jesus is cursed and be in this Holy Spirit. I mean, but I will say the church of Corinth was an interesting church, wasn't it? 
I mean, how could it be possible? If this is a believer saying this, so my favorite explanations of how this could be possible is perhaps Paul's imagining some sort of persecution setting. You know, where things are tightened against someone who professed Jesus formerly, and tightened, and persecution comes, it's their life on the stake, and they say, you know what, Jesus, he's cursed. You know, so maybe he has a persecution context in mind, maybe that's what he's thinking, or perhaps he has like this really ecstatic emotional worship thing going on, and you know, maybe there's something involved in their worship that we just don't do today, and it's, you know, some form of like, like drunkenness overtakes him, or some other you know, false spirit overtakes him. He stands up in the middle of a worship service and says, Jesus is accursed. However, I think that it might be that Paul doesn't even have a believer necessarily in mind here. Uh, Some people say it's a hypothetical thing, and he just imagines that someone would say Jesus is cursed. But I think, whoops, that's not not the spirit, okay? So um, that's just me playing with my pocket. I'll try not to do that anymore. Um, I think that he has... Jewish, Orthodox Jews in mind, my opinion. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul told us how many Jews responded to the cross of Jesus Christ. We think it's the wisdom and power of God, but to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Can't get around it. And the reason it was a stumbling block to the Jews is a crucifixion meant the curse of God. I remember several months ago now at Easter, I was going through Galatians chapter 3 with you. And uh, in verse 13, we got to the place where we said that, that the law of Moses curses all of us because we can't perfectly obey it. So we're under the curse of God. But then what Paul says in Galatians 3.13 is that Jesus Christ freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Remember this? Well, how in the world could Jesus have become a curse? Well, Deuteronomy, Paul says in Galatians 3.13. In Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. In reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. So according to the interpretation of Jewish people in the Old Testament, Jesus was cursed. He died like cursed men and women did on the cross. I mean, the word accursed is normally used in Jewish settings to describe someone who was excommunicated from the people of Israel. The word behind it is the word anathema. And I want to argue that this is normally a Jewish word. This is word, words that Jews would use to describe uh, different, different people. And so, who is saying Jesus is accursed? I would argue that this is the way an Orthodox Jew might respond to the teaching of Jesus Christ. I'll read uh, David Garland, just one quote from him here. David Garland writes, he says, It is particularly in the Jewish setting that Christ is regarded as cursed. He explains, anathema language, or the word accursed, generally reflects Jewish usage. So Paul explains here that that the mark of genuine spirituality negatively is that a spiritual person will never say, Jesus is cursed. But then he describes it positively in the second half of the verse, and he he says this. He says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul's not speaking here of this, this profession as just a trite little statement that someone just says to be safe sometime. You know, Jesus is Lord. But he's giving us a very important doctrinal confession for the church. We don't have time to go through all the New Testament passages that use that phrase, Jesus is Lord. But I'll give you a few just to write down and think about. In Philippians chapter 2, you remember Philippians chapter 2, it's about the middle part of that chapter is God becoming a man, a man, Jesus Christ becoming a man and dying on the cross. And then God responds, verse 9, by exalting him and giving him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every tongue will confess or every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This phrase, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus Christ is Lord, was a, a, the first doctrinal confession, in my opinion, of the early church. It's more than just a, a trite statement. This was a profession of salvation. You could add to this Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Some of you have parts of the Romans road memorized. And in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 it says, Therefore, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Remember this? So I want to suggest here that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is saying that it's only those people who speak through the power of the Holy Spirit that will say Jesus is Lord, that he's, he's basically making the point that all Christians are people of the Spirit, and they're the only ones who will be able to say Jesus is Lord. Men and women do not profess Jesus as the sovereign ruler unless the Holy Spirit enables them to do that. And so, uh, as you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you look at this statement, Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I think that Paul is less concerned with identifying what unbelievers will never say. You know, we read 1 John 3 this morning about tests of spirituality. I don't think he's as concerned with that as, as he is uh, in identifying who spiritual people really are. Spiritual people, those who are in the Spirit, are the ones who say, Jesus is Lord. In my opinion, in, in chapter 12, verse 3, with this statement, Paul is confronting some proud overly zealous spiritual gift people who were boasting in their own gifts as a mark of spirituality. And Paul's point is, no, 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 no. All Christians are spiritual. They're the ones who say Jesus is Lord. And, and he's going to get there. I mean, if you keep reading in the text, in the next few weeks we're going to see that spiritual gifts are given to every individual in the church. And this is not a foreign point to Paul. I mean, Paul has already made the point that spiritual people, that believers are spiritual people. For a moment, just flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I, I know um, I, I need to wrap this up very quickly and just take me a second, but go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and I want to show you that Paul argues the exact same way in chapter 2 as he does in chapter 14, or in chapter 12. In chapter 2, if you were to answer this question, 
Who are the spiritual people? How does Paul answer that in this chapter? Look with me at uh, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Okay, so the point that Paul's establishing here is no one can really know the deep things of God, his wisdom, uh, apart from the Spirit of God. God's Spirit knows him thoroughly. And then the point that he'll make in the rest of this text is uh, that believers can begin to understand the things of the Spirit of God because we've been given the Spirit of God. And he makes a contrast in verses 14 through 16 between two different types of people. Look down at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand God's things, because God's things are spiritually discerned. In other words, you need the Spirit of God to begin to appraise or understand the things of God. But keep reading, verse 16. The spiritual But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And Paul answers that question. We do. We, as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of God. So if anyone ever asks you, who are the spiritual people? Your answer is, Believers in Jesus Christ. All of us. We're all of the Spirit. That doesn't mean we'll never sin, right? That doesn't mean that at times we won't act as if we don't have the Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, you know what? You are spiritual people, but I've got to dress you like babes in Christ because of some of the choices that you're making. It doesn't mean we won't sin. But if someone were to ask you, who are, the, who are spiritual people? Your answer is, all Christians are spiritual. All Christians are of the Spirit. And if we can get this, simple as that sounds, we will not be duped into believing that any one Christian or gift set, name the gift, I don't care what it is, demonstrates another level of spirituality. We all have the Spirit. Every single believer. Spiritual people declare that Jesus is Lord. Have you made that declaration before? You're a spiritual person. There is a teaching it's fairly common, especially in our part of the world, that says that there is a second work of the Spirit of God that's required to exalt someone to a place where they're really spiritual. They reach a higher plane of spirituality some way or another. I think this text will help us answer that and say, no, I've got the Spirit. I'm a spiritual person. 
One of the last points I want to make about verse 3 is, did you notice how much the Holy Spirit makes out of Jesus, this text? You can tell if something is of the Spirit by the way they treat Jesus. And I find this to be true in the entire New Testament. When, when, when you come to passages that talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world, often you'll find this. It'll say something about Jesus glorifying the Son, Jesus. So you could write down, for instance, John 16. We won't go there. John 16, where Jesus is telling the disciples, There's gonna, I'm going to leave, but it's going to be better for you because the Comforter is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he'll do this. He will glorify me. That's what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will try to make significance out of Jesus. And so one of the defining marks of the Spirit's ministry is that he is driven to get people to exalt the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. So uh, I get nervous any time I'm around believers or in a movement or part of something where people make the Holy Spirit an end in and of himself. It's all this stuff, all these books about the Spirit this, the Spirit that, the Spirit this, the Spirit all this, when I understand that this Holy Spirit is predominantly concerned with glorifying the Son, Jesus Christ. And so in this text, we see that the Holy Spirit loves and exalts Christ, and those who are filled by the Spirit of God will act in ways that glorify Him as well. well I pray this week God will allow us, through the Spirit, to declare the confession to others, Jesus is Lord. I trust that God will use that to impact others through the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for this text. I thank you for, Father, thank you for being a part of the spiritual, spiritual people. Lord, no one in the room deserves to, to be considered anything but a sinner, a natural person at odds with you. But through the Holy Spirit of God, Lord, you've led many in this room to make the profession and to identify it with their life that Jesus is Lord. Because of that then, Lord, we become spiritual people for those who have the Spirit and use his ministry in our assembly. We pray that we would learn more about the spiritual, Spirit's work to enable us to glorify Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.